around these parts, I just like being Pastor Carla. And it is just a privilege to be here with all of you today. And, and I'm thinking about what an opportunity to get to be here with you, to worship with you today, and to praise our Lord and Savior. The other thing I was just sitting here thinking is, Chuck, this is dangerous. I'm up here and you're down there. <laughs> Who knows? what? Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about, Pastor Brady, you never do this to your wife, do you? Do you ever use her as illustrations or never, or include her in anything like that? And, so all of a sudden, I just have this thought in my mind. Yeah, you're just smiling at me down there. All right. <laughs> but it is a privilege to be here with you today and to just to get to share with you a little bit. Chuck and I have been on an interesting journey since we left here just about four years ago right now. You know, we had not thought that we would leave here, and the Lord led us over to that neighboring land of Ohio, and we lived over there for a little while, and then the Lord has just recently led us to Kansas City. And... Uh, who would have ever thought that that would be part of the journey? But it's fascinating when we follow Jesus Christ, the places that he takes us and the experiences that we have. And I can just tell you that God has opened doors and made opportunities for us. And we literally feel that God has led us to this place that feels like a mission field for us to be serving the Lord and the church at Nazarene Theological Seminary. Some of you might be thinking, what in the world is that? Well, part of Grace Point is part of the broader Church of the Nazarene, and we are your graduate school of theology to help prepare pastors. We exist in Kansas City, and we've been there for 70 years. This is our 70th anniversary year, and we're excited about what God has done and continues to do through your seminary, and we just have the privilege of serving there. Just brought a few pictures along with me this morning. Up on the top floor of the seminary, if you walk down the hallway, we have pictures of graduates through the years, and I just picked a few of them. Some of you would know some of these names. Some of you are going to say, we have no clue what in the world you're talking about. But the Lord has been raising up leaders to make a difference in the kingdom for a long time. The gentleman all the way over on the left-hand side is Reuben Welch. Is there anybody in here that recalls that name? There might be a few of you. I see them sprinkled around the room. Reuben Welch is 90 years old. He's a gentleman that helped to develop concepts of discipleship that touched many of our lives. He recently showed up at our 70th anniversary homecoming banquet at age 90 and shared with us he is still going strong. God is using him in the kingdom, and it was just so fun to have him be there. Those are some others that served back, that went to school back in the 1940s. Let's look at the pictures from the 50s. There may be some names that you recognize there. Down on the bottom left is Chick Shaver. Anybody recognize that name? I think he's probably preached a revival or two here at this church. Chick Shaver was one of our graduates. Up above is Mildred Bangs Winecoop, probably one of the best-known female theologians in North America. Let's look at the 1960s here. These are just some others of our graduates through the years that you might recognize. The 70s, there's got to be one right in the middle of the 70s there. We've got Lenny Weishart. That's Pastor Brady's dad, and he's one of our graduates. Lyndall Browning, missionary to Israel. You might recognize that name. He's been here before. Jeannie Oriala Sorrell grew up in Haiti as a missionary kid. She's the director of the School of Theology over at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. All kinds of people that are serving the Lord all over the world and in the kingdom. Let's look at the 1980s here. There's some more here. Um, well, all kinds. I don't know if you recognize any of these. I just want to tell you about Mingu Shin up there on the top right-hand corner. Mingu Shin was a graduate of Nazarene Theological Seminary, went on to get a couple of doctorate degrees, and then he went back to Korea. And today he's pastoring the fastest-growing church of the Nazarene in South Korea. Um, they are running about 1,300 on Sunday morning and about five services. 
And then they have prayer meetings. You know, every morning they start at like 4.30 in the morning with two sets of prayer meetings. And then in his free time, he's president of Korea Nazarene University that has 5,000 students. I don't know how this man does it. Incredible man of God, serving God. The 1990s, we've got more of our graduates that you see here. They're serving all over the place, including David Busick, who's a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. Alice Piggy Wallach, who serves in the inner city of Kansas City. Amazing ministry and a pastor. Let's look at the 2000s. We've got a few more here. Some of these include some of our friends from Russia. This church has helped to support the ministry in Russia and Ukraine. You just had Scott Rainey here, another one of our graduates. And Scott Rainey and the ministry that he's doing is part of what we had done. But the Lord had helped us to bring students to raise up leaders over in the former Soviet Union. They graduated from there. Also on the top right is Jennifer Mitchell. She's the mother of uh, Deborah and Peter and um, right over here and Sam. And um, she's gone on to be with Jesus, but she was one of our graduates as well. And in the 2010s, more of our graduates, they just keep going, and the Lord just keeps using them. Let me just tell you a few little stories this morning. That next picture, I think we're going to, well, let me mention that. This is just the place of where we are in Kansas City. Pastor Chuck and I live there now. Um, We'll move on, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. And we're going to move on past that one, too. Let me just tell you about a few of our students. This is David Gillette. David Gillette grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and he grew up and he went on to university to study to be in business and accounting. He got a job on Wall Street and was doing well until the Lord really got a hold of him. And the Lord said, David, I think that you need to take your skills and abilities that you've learned and you need to use them for the kingdom of God serving overseas. He contacted us and talked about this 365M program that we have where you can serve for 365 days in mission overseas working on your master's degree. We ended up sending him to Kenya. And while David was in Kenya, he served for an entire year working with a nonprofit Christian group. But while he was there, Jesus touched his heart, transformed David in such a powerful way. He's back in Kansas City now. He says, I'm going to get my master's of divinity. I'm called to be a preacher of God wherever God might put me in this world. And he's so on fire for Jesus, but using all of his skills and abilities together to make a difference. The next one up here is uh, Lynn Bollinger. Lynn Bollinger, a little bit like me, a second career person. Some of you may know I'm a registered nurse originally and how the Lord kind of got a hold of me middle age and said, you need to head in a different direction. And the Lord led me in that direction. The Lord has led Lynn as well. She's the mother of three teenage kids and she came down to seminary and the Lord has been just teaching her so many new things and she's excited about what she's learning. Last year she entered a competition that we had We had an award to be given, $1,000 to a student that would write a paper on relationship of Christianity and immigration. And what does that look like for us as a Christian response? She won that award. She won that paper. But not only that, the Lord began to work in her own heart and life. Because part of that paper, she went and met the people at her church that met on Sunday afternoon in the same building. It was the Hispanic congregation. She said, I'd never had conversations with those people. She said, I went and I sat down at the table with them. I talked with them. I learned about their lives, about their stories. And I began to ask God, what are we supposed to do as your children and your servants to make a difference? And the Lord has begun to transform her life and her ministry. She's actually doing education and teaching for the entire Kansas City District, Church of the Nazarene, around these issues and helping us as Christians to know how to navigate through. The next one here, this is Shane Burt Miller. Shane grew up in the Bronx in New York City. And uh, Shane was a member of a gang. He had a really rough life until God got a hold of Shane. 
God absolutely transformed him in such a powerful way. And then God called him into the ministry. And Shane went to Eastern Nazarene College in Boston and he studied. Then his church said, we'd like you to come back. We want you to be our youth pastor. So he went back to Bronx, but he said, I need to get further education. And so you don't actually have to move to Kansas City to be a part of our seminary. Our seminary, you can connect from all over the world. And Shane, he video conferences in live to our classes in Kansas City while sitting in New York City. And he does classes online. And I asked him to share his testimony recently with our board. We video conferenced him in. There he was live on the big screen. And it just was fascinating because Shane began to share his testimony about his seminary experience. He said, it is so amazing to be a part of the NTS community and to be so shaped and formed spiritually. And I thought, Shane, you've never been to Kansas City. But he's talking about the community that he got to be a part of. And it's just amazing listening to Shane and the way that God is using him right now in New York City to make a difference. The next one that's up here is Grant Christie. Grant was married, already had two kids, he and his wife. He was a businessman until God got a hold of him and said, you need to give your life and service to me. You need to study for the ministry. He thought he would become a missionary. He packed up his family. They moved to Kansas City. They began to study. And in the time that he was studying, he discovered God was calling him to be a pastor. And so he did two degrees while he was at the seminary. And he just recently graduated. He was our Corlett Sermon Award winner this year, an incredible preacher of God's word. That's the fun stuff that Chuck and I get to be a part of these days. Let me just tell you, we served as missionaries for 13 years. We're on a brand new mission field today. And that new mission field is raising up new pastors and leaders for the future and the world in which you and I live. And I don't think I have to explain to you the fact that our world is changing. This next slide here. 40% of all of our pastors in North America will retire in the next 10 to 15 years. That's a rather sobering fact for all of Christianity. You see the baby boom bubble? (laughs) It's going to burst, and most of the pastors in America, the largest percentage of them, fit in that baby boom era. What are we going to do? What are you and I going to do to be prepared for what lies ahead? And that's why we feel like we're called to such a mission field, that God is asking us to help plant and prepare for the future for what God wants to accomplish. And so we're excited to get to serve God there. This might sound a little bit like a missionary message, but it really is. Because we're all in God's mission in this world, wherever he might plant us and ask us to do the work. So yes, the seminary, 70 years raising up kingdom leaders. It's our plan and our goal to just keep following God, the movement of his Holy Spirit, and what he wants to accomplish in the days ahead. That's where Pastor Chuck and I are serving today, and we're grateful. Well, this morning, as a, or this week, as we were planning to come here, and Chuck and I were talking along the way, The Lord led me to an Old Testament passage of Scripture, and I have to tell you that I wrestled with this message for this morning. I wrestled with the fact that I I thought, Lord, you know, that just seems like, really, is is this the message that you have for us? Is this the Scripture you want me to use? And, And the Lord just kept kind of reconfirming it all the way up until this morning. And so this morning I bring you to a passage of Scripture that I believe the Lord has for me this morning, and I hope for all of you as well. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you want to look that up in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 17. And as you're hunting for that, it's, you know, you go in the middle, go to the left, you'll find it there, 1 Kings chapter 17. Would you please stand in the honor of reading God's word? 
Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and and, and bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little jug of oil oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have, and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the flour, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry, until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away, and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah, and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. An interesting story. One of those that uh, maybe you've heard many times in life, or maybe one you haven't heard very often at all. And I think about um, Elijah and what it must have been like. He was a prophet, and he was trying to talk to Ahab, who was the king. Anybody know who his wife was? Jezebel. Mm, Not a very nice lady. She was kind of creepy. As a matter of fact, uh, the two of them together were probably one of the most evil couples that the world has ever seen. I think they prided themselves on being as evil as they possibly could. And so can you imagine this prophet of God goes to these evil leaders who are the evil leaders over God's land, and he tries to talk to them about how they are supposed to be behaving themselves. They had no desire to listen to him in the least. They were following the worship practices of the land of Phoenicia, and they thought those were exciting, and they brought all this in there. They would not listen, and finally God brings punishment on the land, and the punishment is that there is to be a drought, so now there's no water. And we all know what happens when there is no water. When there's no water, then you can't grow any crops, and then there's no food, and now famine has struck the land. And not only has it struck the land of Israel, we discover that it has reached far beyond Israel. It's reaching all the neighboring countries. So the people of the world are suffering because of the people of Israel who will not worship God. Finally, God tells the prophet Elijah, go on to Zarephath. There's going to be a widow there. She's going to take care of you because the prophet himself is suffering because of the unfaithfulness of the people. So he makes his way to Zarephath, and he runs into a widow there. Now, what's interesting about where we find Zarephath? 
Zarephath is in the land of Phoenicia, the very place where they had been taking the evil practices and bringing them over to Israel. Why in the world would God take the prophet and send the prophet back to the place from which the evil was actually coming in the first place? This is an interesting piece of scripture because it's in this place that we find God reaching out to the Gentiles for the very first time in a very intentional way. And we ought to all say thanks be to God because I'm not sure there are many many of us in here that are probably Jewish. God reached out beyond the borders. He went to the places where the people were that they needed to know who God was. And he comes upon a widow. Now, a widow in the middle of a famine... You can't really find anybody worse off than that. For you see, obviously because she's a widow, she has no husband. And it would be in that time how important it is that you had to have a husband. You needed to have a man that would care for you, a man that would help sustain you, protect you. He has died. She's all alone. She does not have any resources, and she only has this one child, this son. And the son would have been her hope of her future. Her son was her life insurance policy. For you see, you needed to have a son that would grow up and take care of you in your old age. I mean, everything about life is about this boy. Now, all of a sudden, everything that you have is being ripped from you because there is no rain. And the man of God shows up, and she has lost hope. There is no hope. She's gathering sticks. She's going to go home and build a fire, make her last little bit of bread, eat it, and die. It's done with. There's nothing to be done. And yet, could it be that in this woman we might find ourselves today? In the widow of Zarephath, who has nothing. And could it be that we are the ones that are wandering around in a dry and barren desert and saying, God, why are we suffering because there are people that are unfaithful to you? And we are wondering whether we have any hope. Now let's just look for a moment at maybe the symbolism of the things that we see in this story. She's gathering up the sticks. Could it be that this entire story is actually a foreshadowing of an incredible hope that you and I are supposed to find in the future coming Messiah? Jesus, who reaches out beyond the boundaries of the Jewish world and sends his missionaries out to the Gentiles and says that everybody can be saved. You don't have to live and suffer because of the evil that is in this world. She's gathering up the sticks, and and what do the sticks remind us of? But they remind us of the fact that Jesus dies on a tree, on a cross. And so here in the middle of this story, the only hope that she has are the sticks. And sometimes we may think the only thing we have are the things that are going to bring us death. Death was going to come after she had cooked this food using the sticks. And yet is it that the death that happens is what brings us life? The very thing that she thought would be death brings her the life, and it's the salvation of all of humanity. The next thing that we read is he says, what about the water? He wants a drink of water. In the middle of a drought, he wants a drink of water. Right. And yet she, she is able to find water for the prophet. But what does water speak to us about when we read the word of God? Water is life. It is the spirit. 
It is the sustainer that we need, the things that breathes new life into you and into me. And you and I, we need to go through the cross to get to the water so that we may be baptized into the Spirit and we may live again and have new life. It was the hope of what Jesus would come to do to bring new life to this woman. And then there's the bread. He says, uh, could you bring me some bread? And the bread has all kinds of connotations in it when we begin to think about we as the people who feast on the bread of life and how we gather together to eat at the Lord's table and we break his bread. But here's an interesting thing about the bread. She goes home and she makes the bread. She's starving. Her son is starving. And instead of sitting there and eating it, she takes the first fruit of it and she brings it back and she feeds the prophet. And only after she has fed him first does then God provide for her for the remainder of the famine. Ooh, pastor, it's one of those topics we don't really like. This whole idea even about something we call tithing. Could it be that in this woman's life story we actually see that as well? Could it be that tithing is actually this incredible spiritual concept that ties right into the cross, to baptism, to taking part in the Lord's Supper, and in putting God first? And that when we bring to him all that we have, that God then says, I will take care of you, and I will supply your needs. And from that moment She's able to partake of that bread. And might I suggest that she enters into this holy life of participating in life with our holy God. For you see, when we come to the table, when we partake together with Jesus Christ, we remember what he has done for us. But we are entering into the life of Christ. And you and I are asked to be reflections of his holiness in this world today. We are to be partakers of that divine nature. That's the challenge for you and me, to be God's holy people and for the world to see Christ in me. I take part of him, and I take him to the world, the widow. But let me go back to this story again. Let's just rewind a minute. Because as I was studying some of the things I was reading this week, there was a suggestion that, yes, we see the widow as this individual on this personal spiritual journey, and we might find ourselves somewhere on that same journey. But what about the fact that we might find us there as well as the church? Some of the older commentaries suggest that this is the story about Christ reaching out to the church. Because you see, we are called to serve God individually and corporately. We are the body of Christ. We translate that verse of scripture where it says, you are the body of Christ. It would be properly translated, y'all are the body of Christ. The Greek word there is one about us together. We are the body of Christ. Christ came for the church. We are the bride. And at the end of Revelation, we discover that the bride, together with the Savior, says, Come. And there is a place for the church, for us corporately, to be found along this journey as well. When I say the church, this is a local way that we see the church right here at Grace Point. And let me just stop here just a second. And I said this in the first service, but I hope 
and pray that you appreciate what you have here. And if I can just say this a moment, Chuck and I travel all over the place and we've been to many churches and we worship in many places. And I know it's easy sometimes we can get critical of things, but let me just tell you something. God is here and God is doing something in this place and it's an amazing place to come and sense God's presence and to know that he is moving and I want to say praise be to God and may you be grateful and thankful for what God has given you. There are people around the world that would love to be in a place like this today. But God is calling his church, whether it's the local church or the entire church, all of us combined together. I think there's a message here for all of us. And that message takes us back to picking up the sticks. Because you see, right now, Christianity, at least in the United States, some people are describing us as being in exile. People are saying, what's happened to the church? The church doesn't get to have its favored status as maybe it used to have. The church is finding itself being persecuted on one side or the other, and we may feel like we are the widow walking through a drought and picking up the sticks and saying, Maybe we ought to just go home, make our last piece of cake, and be done with it. But then, God says, Church, what does it mean for you to be Christ-centered in everything that you do? What does it mean for the church to be a reflection of the kingdom of God in this world, that everything about what we do, do here And as the church as a whole is a reflection of Christ, it's a huge challenge to all of us. And so just imagine for a moment, the cross has always been a place where death brought life. And maybe as a church, we need to ask ourselves, is there some death that needs to happen before there can be life? Are there some churches that may need to die? I hate to ask that question, but are there? Are there some positions which may need to disappear? Are there traditions that may need to be buried so that we might have death that leads us to life? I don't know. But we need to ask ourselves the question. And then what about the water? Church, is this a place where the Spirit freely flows? Is the Spirit being poured out through the church? Is this the bride that is living in the fullness of God's Holy Spirit and reaching out to the world in ways we could not even imagine? For you see, the world ought to be able to look in upon us and believe that they are seeing just a little foretaste of heaven. Did you know that? This is to be a little bit of heaven on earth. That's what God is calling us to. And finally, the bread or the communion. You see, we're called to this journey, an ever-increasing participation with the Holy God, partaking together with Jesus Christ in this world. And we are to be reflections of Christ, but you know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We are to imitate Christ. Church, we are to intentionally try to look like Christ in this world so that the world can experience Jesus. That's what we are called to do. And I know we're not always perfect at doing this, but we're part of the already not yet of the kingdom of God. The church may not be perfect, but the church should be being perfected. And so together, as God's people, not only are we individually reflections of his holiness, but as a church, we are to be a reflection of God's holiness in this world. Always on a journey, understanding that God is taking us, molding us, making us, We are on a journey together to be more like him.
But along the way, we've got to be honest with ourselves. There are times we just have not always done it the best that we possibly could. There are times maybe that we need to confess that if we're on this spiritual journey individually and collectively, maybe sometimes collectively we need to say, God, we didn't get that right that time. Would you forgive us and let us move on? So I'm going to give you a little confession here this morning about our seminary. For you see, the seminary where we get to live and serve your seminary, we are a predominantly white seminary in a black neighborhood. We are an island within our neighborhood, both physically and metaphorically. We are an Anglo people that live up on that hill. But at the same time, I have to question whether we as the church... Have we gathered as a predominantly segregated island, isolating ourselves from the communities maybe in which we have been called to serve? These are difficult days, folks. Days in which we are forced to wrestle with questions that reach to the core of our faith. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And it was a kingdom that was filled with peace and love. And he did what he could to intentionally reach across and to break down barriers. That's my confession. We don't like to have our comfort zones questioned. And maybe we have to ask ourselves why we like our islands of our own creation. Because you see, spiritually, I grew up around the seminary. Let me just tell you what our city was like in Kansas City. It's an interesting place. This week it was awesome as we celebrated the Royals winning the World Series. Let me just put that out there. That was pretty awesome. The biggest question of the week was, Carly, are you going to cancel school on Tuesday? That was the big question. But um, in our city, two blocks west of our seminary is a street called Troost Avenue. It runs north and south through our city. And this is even embarrassing to tell you, but less than 100 years ago, the deeds of the properties on the west side of Troost in Kansas City, Missouri, included a clause that said you could not sell your house to a black or a Jew. And it created division and heartache in that city. And I'm incredibly proud to tell you that your Nazarene seminary sits two blocks east of Troost in a neighborhood where everybody has been always allowed to live. But as a people of faith, what is that supposed to look like? And while I was a teenager, I attended First Church of the Nazarene. And it was right down there on that Troost Avenue. And yet while I was a teenager, I struggled because I kept hearing people talk about our need to relocate. And as a kid, I couldn't quite understand that. And then there was the Wednesday night that somebody got shot in the little hamburger joint behind the church. And people said, we got to go. This is it. We've got to move out to the suburbs. And so we made our plans to move out to the suburbs, and yet for three years then we had no church building, and we worshipped. For the three years I was in high school, we worshipped in the chapel of the seminary where I'm now the president. That's kind of amazing. And at that time, people kept leaving the church because they didn't want to come down to that part of town. And so the church kept shrinking in size. And so as a teenager, we didn't have enough people to help run children's ministries. And so my best friend Judy and I ran the four- and five-year-olds. 
And we didn't really have space for the four and five-year-olds, and we met in the basement of one of the houses across the street from the seminary. But I will never forget the faces of my four and five-year-old kids from the neighborhood that came to my to class. I loved those kids. And yet I couldn't figure out why we were planning to leave all my kids that I ministered to and move so far away where they would never get to come to church. And we did. And this is just my personal confession. That sometimes at night in our neighborhood, and I hear the sirens going off because Chuck and I live there now, but I think, are there any of those that are going to suffer incarceration because we chose to just go away? This is my personal story. This is my confession. I walk around our neighborhood, Chuck and I both do. We intentionally walk around the neighborhood. We're trying to get to know the people. They're kind of surprised that we live there. We feel like God's called us to go back. And let me just tell you, we've had some pretty difficult conversations with people who've said to me, why did the Church of the Nazarene abandon this community? Why did the Church of the Nazarene leave? And I'm doing a confession with you today. (laughs) Because I believe this is part of what God calls us to as the church. I'm not sure that we made the best decisions. Maybe we did. I don't know. But today, I live in that community, and I'm praying that God helps us to be a reflection of Christ in a place where I believe God has called us to. Last October, our board voted unanimously to put to rest any questions of relocating that seminary and to commit itself to 1700 East Meyer Boulevard. Because I believe that God has called us to be a presence in the place where he has planted us, to be a reflection of Jesus in this world. And we are a church that doesn't always get it right. But God says, be partakers of me, follow me. The church may be not perfect, but being perfected. May God take us and may we continue to partake, you and I, individually and collectively, and may God make us the reflection of the kingdom that he would call us to be. A prophet, a widow, somewhere, you and I may just find ourselves in that story. I'm not sure where we find ourselves, but I know this. I know that Jesus is saying, would you just give me all of it? individually, and the church? Will you give me your sticks and your water and the bread? And can I take them and transform them into something that will give new life, ongoing, in the midst of a drought and a desert? I'm going to ask Pastor Chuck to come up here just a minute. If you don't mind, we're just going to end here singing a little song together. I surrender all. Because I think that at the end of the day, that's what the widow learned. That's what you and I need to learn. That there is nothing more but giving it all up to Jesus as we surrender to him. All to Jesus I surrender all to him.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for...